hello and welcome to Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we discuss the two greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies. Sometimes giving our, what is it? Uh, sometimes achieving. achieving. Sometimes achieving great. Oh fuck! Outstanding, pairings. outstanding pairings. I thought you were going to do it in Cliff's voice. I, I felt like I had, you had a Cliff coming on here. Other times, giving ourselves the chance to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouth. This is the beginning of the episode where we don't know if there's going to be a lot of failure or a we're, lot of we're going to find out. We are. This is kind of an experimental episode. Yeah, it is. It's all horror October Eve. Yes, <laughs> uh, that's an interesting Next way of billing week, it. The first yeah. of it four episodes in a row of nothing but horror. All, every every Wednesday month. in October, that's what we're bringing yeah. you. My name is Joe Hilliard. Of course, I'm joined with two of the best guys in the world, Dave Gurney and Carlos Cooper. Did I, I, you did threw I me off you? by yeah. two of the best guys in the world. He's I'm not like, I'm not. About us. I'm not willing to claim that title. I mean, he must have invited some people over. Who I'll were, take it. Okay, good. All right. Well, this is our last chance to do something. Fun, something maybe comedic. <laughs> because, before folks, a, yeah, it's all a grind terror. throughout. No, it's a different kind of fun. So uh, we put together a pretty fun. fun episode, I think. Well, th- this is, you know, before I know, I feel like I'm breaking a cardinal rule here about not delaying glasses the opening dry. of the beer. Glasses are dry. I, it's we normally I that does that, but, commits that sin. But I do think from a programming standpoint, this is a noteworthy episode in the sense that this is one of those that really kind of hatched as a... You know, a, a small comment that was made that was followed up on in our After Hours program, which for our regular listeners who are on the Patreon, you're hearing this week after week and you get kind of this behind the scenes look. And it was there that we kind of developed this idea because Carlos yeah. kind of used Cameron Crowe as a sort of just uh, a euphemism for badness. Yeah. Like the, the, yeah. he kind of just a throwaway like that's what now, you it, would... If you combined James Cameron Crowe into one, it's everything <laughs> that's wrong about filmmaking. Uh, Ooh, you've been working on that all week, haven't <laughs> you? <laughs> I had that one ready. But but we're gonna we're gonna test this theory. We're gonna see because Joe and I felt like Carlos had not seen any of the really crucial Cameron Crowe films. Even though really... I have seen half, of, I had one of these is my first time. The other one is a revisit. Okay, but but you hadn't watched it in its entirety. No, you, I had. You had? Okay. The well, then we'll one. we'll get yeah. to that yeah, later. We'll get I guess. to that. Okay. But if you're interested in these conversations and the kind of behind the scenes look into how we program episodes where we get ideas for what films to cover beer in a movie or patreon.com slash beer in a movie podcast is where you can find that $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every single week. I will revisit this later on in the episode yeah. just to remind you, but that's where this episode originated and those folks are helping us program one of those all horror all horror october, october. episodes they so are this currently is a, voting it's a fun space to be in folks get if in you're there. there with us we love having you if you're not there get in what why what are you waiting for yeah, but i'm and, and, i should and, not delay even a second longer yeah speaking of a fun space to be in <laughs> oh, um, this is nice. a beer from elysian brewing company which is based in seattle um although uh Oh, Seattle and Fort Collins. They've expanded to that size. So Elysian Brewing Company. I have visited Seattle uh, at one point and had a great time. So I will say it's a fun space to be in. It's a fun fun place. Yeah, love it. This is their Space Dust IPA. Um, I knew this brewery was from Seattle. I had seen it on our shelves. And uh, the tie-in is clearly the location in which our first film is set. And uh, so I so I went to go pick up something from Elysian, anything I could find, and I found this IPA and a twelve pack, a twelve variety pack of 
various pumpkin beers wow. from Elysian. It was their pumpkin ale. It was their imperial pumpkin ale. It was Ooh. a coffee pumpkin ale. And then it was another, the Pumpkachino or Pumpkachino <laughs> or something, something like that, where it was like yeah. a different yeah. spin on the coffee wow. pumpkin ale. That's a lot of pumpkin variety. And I know Joe hates pumpkin beer. So I went with the Space I, Dust idea. It's a strong word, but to drink three of four different kinds, that would not be the, the well, best day of the and year. And I feel like well, if we're going to do that. I did that. not plan on us drinking all four, and that was one reason I didn't go with it is because I, I like Pumpkinator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm excited when that comes out every sure. year. And uh, I guess that's it, really. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? That we had last week on this show. Not the Pumpkinator, but another but Saint beer Arnold, from St. Yeah. Arnold. Their and, Harmony. And so I thought, these will sit in my fridge yeah. for a long time. So well, I, 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 I shan't do that to myself. Um, well, thank you, Carlos, for procuring this because uh, it's been a while. I have had this, I don't know, a few years ago, I think when they started distributing in our market. But yeah, same. It's, it's been a while, so it'll be fun to revisit. Been a while. Uh, an older take. This is a clear IPA, folks. We're not drinking a hazy today. But we are drinking an 8.2. It is 8.2. Oh, oh sorry. I totally, wow. I, I do not I, remember this I being I totally that forgot heavy. all the details. Uh, Space Dust IPA. The hopping is pure Starglow energy with Chinook to bitter uh, and late and dry additions of Citra and Amarillo hops. Yes, 8.2%. Um, unfortunately, Elysian doesn't give us bottling dates. They give us enjoy buy dates. So I don't know. How fresh! This so, is. what is their enjoy by? Are we in their zone? Oh yeah, it's like this, the end of the year. Okay, that you. I feel like most breweries do six months on the hoppier ales, at least. Then so. this is fresh enough, I guess. It's yeah, like three months old. Maybe, yeah, probably a little yeah. less. Well, Seattle we'll, is the. We'll sip on this. Yeah, yeah I have a feeling that Seattle. if listeners are playing this game along with us and know that we're doing Cameron Crow, they've already figured know that the out. film is set in Seattle. Mm-hmm. They know, of course. What we're going to be talking about um, today on the get episode. my notes out. Ooh. <laughs> and, and before and we're, you know we're doing singles. Nineteen ninety two. Of course, this is his second directorial. Uh, he had done. Uh, he had written the uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High prior to that. Correct. Yeah. So um, I, had, I had a then written and, and directed. Yes, this say sec- anything. Yeah, second film. Uh, I did a bunch of research on when this movie came out, as opposed to or in conjunction with maybe the. Um, some of the bands that were coming out of Seattle, of course, in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. And uh, I think we're going to have a great talk. Mm. Else. We well, will talk. So, <laughs> so this came out in November 92, mm-hmm. uh, which, which was kind of right smack dab in the middle of the Seattle explosion, the grunge explosion. Yeah, what yeah, the, what the, gets referred to as the Seattle sound in this film hadn't quite been dubbed grunge, I don't think, right. uh, by the press. I so, think it's a few months Prior to Nevermind being released. It, it was shot in March of 91. Yeah. And Nevermind, we just celebrated the 30th anniversary of its release three, four days ago, right? Uh, yeah. Maybe two days ago. Depending on when you're listening to this, maybe it, it would be Thursday like five or, or six days ago. Right? Um, so, you know, very, very much this this was that moment building up to that, which is interesting because, well, we, we can go into it. He wasn't glomming on to a scene that had exploded. Right. He was whether we think of it as prescient or lucky or whatever, stumbled into chronicling this scene that was on the verge of exploding in a way that I don't think he or anybody else would have well, quite predicted. I think predict. many I people believe, disagree with that. I think that many people really? believe that yeah. the movie helped explode the scene. 
I think it. I don't know about that. I think it was there to ride the wave, definitely. But by, by ninety two, I don't think when it was made, when it was actually conceived of and shot, that it was a an opportunistic attempt to do. No, so. no, no. I right. make, make sure I clarify. I think that the release of the movie to the nationwide audience helped a nationwide audience. No, see I understand this what you're saying, and I and I do push against that. Okay. but I'm saying I feel like it rides oh, the right. wave that it happened to catch. We'll, we'll, Let's go. The summary here: it is a romantic comedy, folks. We have it, it's not. Not the romantic comedy that focuses on a single couple. It is a romantic comedy that looks at multiple young singles. Singles. <laughs> who uh, are all Clever. living in Seattle. Most of them in one apartment building. Um, and it's kind came of... came out two years before Friends. The, right? In Melrose Place. And mm-hmm. so many other series that were kind of about young people in their 20s. Right. Finding their way through their love lives, and sharing apartments, basically. right? Sharing apartments, living close to each other. Anyway, so so the idea here. Now there are probably the couple that we stick with the most: uh, Campbell Scott and uh, uh, Kira Sedgwick. They, they play Steve and Linda. You know, Linda's the character we probably hear from the most early on in the film, and then it kind of goes over to being more uh, Steve's film, kind of towards the end. It bounces back and forth, and we get quite a bit of Janet as well. Right, and, and Bridget Fonda's character, Matt yeah. Dillon, her boyfriend, kind of the comic relief slash, uh, well, we can talk about how, how we think that character comes out, but I think there's there's a redemption story there, um, it, it, you know, and at some point. And then lots of just local color. They really did bring in a lot of the musicians who were operating in the scene, the three of the members of Pearl Jam show up playing members of Matt Dillon's band uh, in the film. are themselves. Dick. But named as they are, Eddie, Eddie Vedder, Vedder, Jeff yeah. Ament, uh, and uh, Stone, right? Stone Gossard is the other one. I don't know. I don't care about Pearl Jam. <laughs> well, you you and my daughters have something in common. Yeah, uh, bad band. I'm not, I, I don't love Pearl Anyway, okay. But Alice in Chains. <laughs> there, there are a couple great Alice in concert scenes. On, yeah. Alice in Chains, Soundgarden Sound. show up on stage performing some of their songs. Um, you know, the, the idea of nightlife being these people going out to see these rock bands. Dancing sort of, at a grunge show. Dude, it, it, weirder things have happened. Weirder but, things uh, have happened, yeah. But anyway, no, so, right. so, so you know, that's kind of the lay of the land. It's a, come on, it was a very successful film. Um, so it was. I didn't. I didn't look into its budget or its box well, office or anything like that. So it was. It was a small film in terms of budget. It was made for under ten mil. That's it was nine million dollars. But it made eighteen point five at the box office. So that's, that's so a profitable bad. film. Maybe just barely profitable. But then when you think about how much this soundtrack sold and some of yeah. and, and again being part of that Seattle moment. I think this was looked at as a pretty successful feature, but certainly not a blockbuster. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I know that it has um, withstood the test of time for fans, mm-hmm. and that it has um, probably grown in esteem since it grown came in out. esteem was viewed critically in a positive way. But I didn't what I was curious about because I didn't research think. To, did it make the I money? I didn't even think to research that. Yeah. What at at its time? Yeah. How well did it sounds like it? It did fairly well though. Yes. I As a record store owner, I know the soundtrack is something people care about. Yeah. You would have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it had a record store day release at one point and stuff like that. Yeah. Very cool. So, so I've laid it out, folks. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, and I'll tilt my hand. I mean, I love this film. 
<laughs> Carlos can do my my whole spiel for me. Um, yeah, I love this film. This is, the one, this is the one you hadn't seen, Carlos. I had not seen this. Okay, one, no, I had never seen it. As I, okay, as I I'm, was watching, it. I'm challenging Carlos, and here. I got it as somebody with who, reality bites who, too. Who suggests that he loves rom coms? Uh-huh. As somebody who suggests he loves rock music? Uh-huh. As somebody who suggests that he has an interest in comedy at times? I cannot see how. I love comedy. I mean, I love comedy. As I was watching the movie, I kept saying, Carlos is going to like that part. Oh, he's into vinyl, our, our lead, uh, Campbell yeah, Scott. Yeah. He's going to like that part. Uh, you know, a, a, again and again and again. And I was curious when we walked through the door today and turned on the microphones if Carlos would be able to fight through, to break through his, <laughs> his distaste Crow for Cameron Crowe uh, to, to like the film. So, yeah, Carlos, I'm excited to know that you liked it. Let me just say <laughs> around the horn, I, I, I like this movie, too. I haven't revisited it in a very long time. And the experience from beginning to end, for reasons maybe I can get into later, are I, I, I enjoyed it very mm. much. What did you enjoy about it? I always, I say this over and over, like the um, the the timestamp of it all. This is relationships pre-cell phone, relationships that mm-hmm. rely on answering machines. Video dating service. Video, yeah. <laughs> now, I, I love a video dating service. And because the technology... It, with and with the, Tim Burton as the director. You know, he's oh. like the next Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Martin Scorsese, Which yeah. is a quote that is in me and my friends from oh. high school's kind of, you know, That's rotation. Great. Vernacular, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, so as it was coming, I, I got to quote along with it yeah. to, to my fiance's annoyance. Um, but I like that timestamp of it. I like the idea that we're seeing, as I've mentioned, as I kind of alluded to, I think a, a an an inspiration for one of the most uh, successful sitcoms of all time, like it or not, Friends. They had to have stolen some of the concepts from here. They had to have four, five, six different types of people, lucky, unlucky, in love, trying to find their way while yeah. living nearby one another in the same apartment. I mean, there's there's, there's a lawsuit available, probably. <laughs> but I, I like that. I like the um, back and forth between... I like how there's not a one, two, three progression of plot. Yeah. It's just like a... A year in the was, life, or six months in the life of, right. and you're seeing life. Look at the screen. Don't you realize what that is? That's life itself. Can't you smell the life? I was definitely, this time watching it, thinking a lot about the story structure here mm-hmm. in a way that I hadn't before, because it's, I will say, like, from a screenplay standpoint, I think he did such a good job with sequencing the moments, the scenes that he chooses to, to show us, the, the snapshots of their lives that he kind of tears into, right. that it never feels forced or a problem that we're shifting from one set of characters to another for pretty good stretches of the film. I mean, when you actually sit there and think about it, you're like, well, I just spent 20 minutes with this particular character doing this thing, and now I'm on to this character who has nothing to do with it. But it never feels that disconnected because there's all the reverberations of it's a lot of the same kind of miscommunication but they in do relationships. Have, but they do have things to do with each other. I think the thing, they that, do. I think the thing that really ties the like narratives together is that uh, the train guy and right. the potential breast augmentation girl dated at one point yep. and, are, and are friends. Yeah. 
And so that conversation I feel or their interactions I feel is what overlaps and brings it all into the same world. To me, the one that stands out the most is being somewhat is Debbie, you know, the Debbie character, the video dating. Yeah, I I dislike that character. I dislike that actress. Oh, I like I liked it. I I like it. See, I was going to say it fits in the film. But when you think about it, I mean, she vaguely interacts with him at the coffee shop a couple times. But and he mentions her when he's doing the tour of the courtyard, uh, mm-hmm. you know, saying like, oh, the, yeah. "There's, you know, Bailey. He's the mater D. He keeps us in food, you know." Like, and then goes down to her apartment. She eats men. That was it. Like in, instead of food, she eats men. Something yeah, right. like that. Um, but that's really like the. Although limited... I did like her dating video. Oh, it's amazing! It's and, incredible. And the whole, the whole, uh, you know, sort of it's comedy country. of errors with her going to the wrong restaurant. Right being bad at bicycling but wanting to impress the guy and so like having to bust her ass to get over to the correct one being there too late and he's already at the apartment gets there and then he's hanging out with the roommate who they have this connection from before i mean it's beautiful it's just and, and beautifully to, executed and romantic comedy uh, to see who can you know who's yes, gonna get the guy right. and, and 80 dollars 80 dollars and doing the dishes, dishes for, for the month. month and he overhears the entire and thing. he's like oh, oh it's not, not bad yeah $80. <laughs> like cameron crow seems little to, touches seems to enjoy wagering on romantic partners to through line in his film it, it yeah, does have a reference to our we, do, second we will might half. see that again uh, later tonight so um i have a hard time with you referring to this as a romantic comedy because I did not laugh once in this entire film. Really, uh, I did not even find that it, scene I just described. No, I found you didn't it, find that funny. I found it very obvious and uh, kind of comic relief that the Debbie character is played some out. comic relief. Um, played out. It's just so fucking obvious. Uh, a plot point. Well, desperate um, people are obvious. I don't. What, what? I, yeah, I don't know. There's nothing clever about this film, but Cameron Crowe does fancy himself a clever filmmaker uh, <laughs> and a witty filmmaker, especially. I but, don't disagree with you. There is nothing clever about this movie, although oh, I think he, that the screenplay is pretty phenomenal. But look, regardless, so like, I, so I didn't like this movie. I oh, you didn't? Like no, it? I don't. Aww. I didn't care. So, but look, look, look. Scam. Anyone who ever a, had a heart. A part of it. A part of it is that I fucked up in the sequencing of my viewing of these films. And I'll say that that could very much be playing into things a little bit because I watched our second film first, which I'd already seen and already had certain feelings about, which have only been kind of amplified since then. But I watched it because I knew Kylie had seen it. And so I was like, and I, and I was watching it without her mm-hmm. and, and I knew that we were only going to have time to watch one of these movies together, if any of them. And so I chose to watch that one first, knowing that later in the evening when she came home, we could watch singles. And I probably should not have done that. I should have gone in fresh with singles, having never seen it before. But I mean, one thing that I will say about this movie is that I just could give two shits about any of these characters. I just never cared about them. And hmm. I didn't find any of them interesting. I didn't find there to be like anything that I really considered all that funny in it. I hate the fucking music. I don't like Soundgarden. I don't like Alice in Chains. I hate grunge music. I find it very grating and wow. just wow. annoying. And so. <laughs> 
and 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 that and that obviously has the grunge thing obviously has nothing to do with this film. I, I hate I, Campbell Scott as an actor. I, I hate Bridget Fonda. I've never. I, 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 I can just look sucks. into their eyes and see the darkness of their soul, and that's all of these Matt people. Matt Dillon's never I, done anything in his career. In this film. Well, I, I, I honestly have no connection to Matt Dillon whatsoever. I can't think of anything. You you I've wanted really to watch House of Jack built? Yes. Yeah. But but I've never seen him in anything that I can recall off the top of my head. <laughs> liar. I'm saying I'm saying. At no, the no, top no. of the episode, your little scam here. Oh. What are you talking about? When you said you loved the film. Oh no, I was I was no, doing David. I was doing David's. Part. You didn't. You didn't. Pick oh, that I thought up. he was sitting like no, 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 his he card was, on the table. He was stepping on me, saying he could already predict that I. <laughs> yeah, this film. I mean, yeah. but you did say that in after hours too. Um, no, what I'm saying is that I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I've seen Matt Dillon in. Like uh-huh. I couldn't rattle off anything from his filmography mm-hmm. other than House the Jack Bill. Um, Something about Mary. Uh, yes, you don't remember him, him in that. Uh, oh wow, he's a huge thing in that. I've, but I've only seen that like once, like ten years ago. So the, anyway, um, the teeth in that are wonderful. Mm. I mean, they, they my, deserve their own award. My my feelings about grunge music don't have anything to do with this film. I've always felt that way about grunge music. Like I don't like Nirvana either. You know, uh, for the mostly Nevermind's in utero, I can kind of listen to and be like, oh, okay. But um, so. In, from literally the beginning of the film, I'm put off by it, you know, because I'm about to have to listen to a bunch of music that I hate and for the entire movie, you know, and so that definitely also and and the fact that one of the characters we're supposed to care about is an aspiring grunge musician and he's really leaning into the aesthetic of it and everything. And then there's but also the, making and, fun of it. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's supposed to be irony. Yeah. Uh, well, it does not read that way to me. Oh, because, come on. Well, it doesn't. Really? Look, no, no, no. It, it doesn't. When, when Cameron Crowe playing the interviewer is asking him to expand upon what touch me, I'm dick means and he's, he's, he's standing there and he's, he's a like, buffoon. well, you could take it the yeah. way where... Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. I, 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 I did read the character as a buffoon, but I didn't read his like embracing of the Seattle uh. sound aesthetic as ironic. I read him as kind of a doofus. And those yeah. are different things. They are, but I mean, t- Touch Me, I'm Dick is a reimagining of Touch Me, I'm Sick, which is one of the many great songs of the Grunger. Which I, is a song I gotta, I'm not familiar all with. All I gotta say is... Jesus Christ, I can't wait until we put some kind of emo fucking soundtrack film on this podcast because I'm going to rip the shit out of goddamn weak ass emo music because you can you hear like you are cutting me open and like stabbing directly into the heart of a music lover. Yeah, I mean, this is hard shit to take right now. I'm just telling you, watch it, buddy. When we start listening to some brand new, well, brand new scored this film, man, I'm going to be all about the bullshit. I don't like the the bullshit. I don't think that I have the fondness for brand new that you think Okay, well, can we talk about... Name one of the emo bands you like. No, no, hold on, hold on, but... you know, another another bigger part of of that conversation too is that, is that your taste sucks, guys. No, I hate your taste. Anything you like, I, I never hate. take oh it personally. God. I never take it. It's personally. hard not. Honestly, I'll just put out there. Yeah, the grunge was a formative moment for sure. me. Sure, this was like I was sure. twenty years old 13, when this movie came out. Fourteen years old. I, I was a little younger. Uh-huh. Thirteen, fourteen. I mean, this was a moment, and Kurt Cobain in particular is responsible for so much of the musical taste that I have these days because of all the the names he dropped and all the great yeah. artists who he helped uplift. Daniel Johnston, the Vaselines, that like the Shags. These, yeah, that I would have never heard of. So to to me, I just I got to do a little tiny editorial corrective here, folks. What Carlos says <laughs> is, is some of the most 
loaded bullshit right now. Okay. That he, that, please, just fast forward. Go back in time. Fast forward past his diatribe against grunge and then pick back up. And any of his criticisms about the film other than that, I'm happy to let you listen to, but I cannot let that one stand. What about the cameos? Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh. We're not getting past this because I think that, there, I think that there is something that David is failing to... <laughs> Like uh, no, obviously I failed. No, no, no. Hey, Dave, can levels. you bite the uh, curb because now he's going to stomp <laughs> you in the back of the head? No, I'm, I'm saying there, there's something that David is failing to put into context about my feelings about this, and it is the age difference between us. Like by the time that I was old enough to form memories, we I was experiencing the thing that was copying grunge. Like my first memories of radio rock and roll music is like. Creed and Nickelback and, and those that's kinds unfortunate. of things, which, I do, I do. which is what informs why I feel the way I feel about grunge. Because when I first heard Pearl Jam, I was like, "Oh, he sounds like the guy from the band that I hate." Mm. And while intellectually I do understand that he clearly came first, and yeah. they are copying him, the order in which I received that content was mm. not that order. So I already had negative feelings about that sound yeah. before I heard the thing that originated that sound. Right. So it has nothing to do with you and your formative years and all this bullshit that you're trying to bring into it. I, I'm not trying to take a stab at your music taste. I don't think that people that like grunge are wrong, especially people that were around when it when it was coming out and when it was like the thing to consume or whatever. radio but music be, forever. But because of the... Exactly. And when I first started experiencing the radio... And when I first started experiencing the radio, it had a negative impact sure. on the well, way the, the radio wait, but, 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 the but we also have to... I mean... This is uh, th so. This is an important conversation for us to have as critics. Like Carlos, I want you to be a good critic. I want you to be a great critic, and you you got to bring the historical into it, and you got to factor in. It wasn't just that it set the stage. It did set the stage for some terrible, terrible, horrible shit. The Nickelback Creed, the post grunge stuff. Although I do I like will, some Creed songs. I don't, but it, so I have nothing that I'm going to try to defend that with. But it opened the door for the pop punk stuff and honestly the emo stuff that for you sure. love because radio was not playing that kind of rock music. Yeah, and, the, it, but it, and it didn't for adjacent. very long. So it was Nirvana. It was to some extent, I think, you know, Soundgarden, but particularly Nirvana, which was yeah, very it, grunge, that opened the door for a lot of the stuff that you actually did love as a guy. Yeah, so so Dookie, keep that in mind. Sunny Embrace that at the same time that you no, push away. I know, but but again, I think that you know, to bring it back to singles, what colors a little bit of this for me is that the things that you're talking about never reached the insane level of popularity that the grunge bands reached. And like, I don't, when I listen to Soundgarden, I don't necessarily sit there and think like, these are incompetent musicians that are writing bad music. I think I don't like the way this sounds. Like I don't like Chris Cornell's voice. I don't think that mm. technically he's a bad singer. I don't think that he's an untalented singer, yeah. but I don't like the way his voice sounds. And I don't like the kind of thing that they're doing. I mean, it, you can completely take it to a, a entirely different genre. Like I can acknowledge how talented Carrie Underwood is as a vocalist. I fucking hate her music. Mm. You know, like I don't ever want to listen to it, but if I am, I can be like technically right. she's very proficient. I could right. never and so, not listen to George Strait just because Billy Ray Cyrus came along someday. You got to go back to those roots. I mean, I, well, I, but I also but know that you've given no, them a fair shake, Carlos. I mean, I know that about you. You've listened to plenty of Nirvana to form. And I understand. Game. I definitely understand how. I think one of the one of the very emblematic aspects of grunge was 
people being very audacious with their vocal approach, like not conforming to any of the expectations of what had come before, forging new, and some of it just sounds grating to people. I understand that. Like, you know, my, my daughters watched the movie with me and Adela was remarking on Chris Cornell as having a bad voice. Like, oh, why? Like, because he's scratching. She, but I haven't exposed her to a ton of like scratchier singer kind of people. Yeah. It's so not it's, for me. it feels wrong. I get it. I get it. I, I understand. You want to talk about the movie for a little bit? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah sure. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but but David got mad at me for not. Well, so, it's I, just, I, man, so I had to, I had I to put know. it into context. God. Okay. But, okay. But another thing, and I said this on After Hours, and I said it a moment ago that Cameron Crowe is this very like, self important filmmaker. And there was one moment there, you know, this film wasn't void, devoid of things I liked. Like there were some moments that I liked the video dating thing being okay. an example of them. But, uh, you of did, but you said you um, didn't find it funny. I didn't find it funny, but I thought it was, I thought that part was entertaining. Like I was at that point, I was somewhat interested in her story arc and then Victor Garber coming out of nowhere and like sending her <laughs> like, that was weird. Paul mm-hmm. Giamatti showing up was cool. Oh, that was wonderful. Um, yeah. But to go to, to go back to Cameron Crowe's era of self-importance, one of the thing, one of the moments that I did find particularly poignant, and probably the lone point in the film where I genuinely felt for any of the characters was I'll guess. Okay, yeah, uh, Kara Sedgwick gets pregnant. Am I on the right track? And he and Campbell Scott. Uh, who got got her pregnant goes to the store to get the uh, pregnancy tests and the shot is just a uh, dolly down the aisle with his hand putting a dozen the different, different uh, pregnancy tests into this is his not basket. what I would have but then he comes to the about. rose and picks the rose up no that was all, not it what she and needs is compassion uh, that, that 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 was not it but that uh, I, I suppose that could fit in there and and obviously um What's her character's name? Kira Sedgwick. Linda? Linda. Linda. Linda losing the baby is a very sad moment, and mm. I did, and I did feel for her character in that moment. That tears me apart every it's, time. It's it that that was brutal, and I I I wasn't necessarily going to mention it because it's like obviously that was really fucking sad, and sure. like if you didn't feel for her in that moment, like what the fuck, you know? It seemed an obvious enough point that I didn't need to state it, but now I will since I feel like I have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what was it? What were you gonna say though? Uh, well. If, the scene you screenshotted and sent to us. Okay. Uh, him in the phone booth. Him in the phone booth. And it, but it was when he says like, I want to be new to you. Uh, yeah. You know, when he's like trying to start over with her or whatever. Right. She goes off for a month of trip, comes to back Alaska, and they decide back. that they're just going to be friends. Well, it, yeah, and he, he kind of blows it. It's all about, drunk. it's all about inability to communicate. Right. Which is people, why it's so hard for me to relate to, or why it's so really? hard for me to really care about them. Oh. Because, because look, the literal, Oh, I see people make these mistakes. No, all the I do, time. and I think they're so stupid. They make me so mad all the time. Okay, but like, then you'll find yourself in one someday, yeah. and it's gonna. F- I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Like, I don't. Or you I, just I, want films to just, do it the way you do no, it. I mean, no, no, I think no, no. I don't. Right. I, I don't. I don't want that. I was. I was thinking. I was actually thinking. How about many this record store other... owner films can we watch? No, 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 no. no. Well, first of all, we've only, <laughs> we've only watched. We've only watched one, uh, and there's really only one worth watching. But uh, no, I. I was. I was even thinking about this the other day because because uh, it was. We've watched two. Empire Records. That's not about a record store owner, though. That's about being working in a record store. They're different. Anyway, I don't want to get bogged down. <laughs> I, I was I was thinking about this the other day because if you like, if you really work on having healthy relationships with people in your life, and it's something that you're cognizant of and that you're like striving towards all the time, at a certain point, you realize that every worthwhile piece of drama or 
narrative or storytelling, like 95% of it hinges on people that have an inability to communicate with each other. And then it becomes very frustrating because I, I, I find myself like this watching shows all the time. And I don't think that people should stop crafting stories this way, (laughs) but I do find myself very frustrated when I'm watching a film and it's like, just tell her how you feel (laughs) and your problems. Well, okay. 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 But but a big part of it too, is them not being truthful with themselves. Sure. Sure. They aren't. And then, and, and, and this is beside the point and of what I'm trying to. Know. Okay, because you love the f- the scene in the phone booth. I love where he's the scene. The I message, love the scene in the phone booth, which is a fantastic scene. It's a good scene. People it is pounding good scene. on the door, thinking it's a bathroom, while yes. he's trying to deliver. While he's trying this. to have this, yeah. and then of course, and and this part kind of undermines Agreed. that scene a little Agreed. bit when she rewinds it and it eats the tape, and it's like, okay. that undermines it. Yes. And, that's a, oh no. That's crap. It's, oh, it's are you kidding? It's kind of crappy. Yeah. Oh no, that's the he has just finally reached a point where he has said exactly what he should have said and in exactly the way he should have said it with the uh-huh. right emotional tenor and everything. Yeah. And it gets trashed. I yeah. mean, to me that Isn't is Isn't that a little obvious to obvious though no that is a universal truth that is your best shot will be the one where the tape machine fucks up it'll be the one where the audience wasn't listening to you that moment it will be the one where that listener who would have gotten something from it decides to skip that episode that week and they never hear the gem that dropped from your mouth so i feel like as an artist as a person you have to recognize that your best shot sometimes are the ones that don't get seen by other people and you're like did anybody see that go in so that's a universal truth that's not a tr- that's not like a hackneyed th- that is just landing on this is the shit that happens folks you'll get it right but it'll be exactly when it can't work no the screenwriting uh, I, I, pays I, I, off when she goes to herself spe- speaking to herself in her apartment by herself this machine always eats the tape always eats the tape and she's just tra- she's telegraphing to the audience that this isn't just a Screenwriting plot. It's a, a little bit like it, it is. Anyway, but small point. Small okay. point. Yeah, small point. Small <laughs> I like. Point. I don't, David, but I like I don't understand the me. point. I don't I like even grunge. understand the point. Look, my 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 larger shitting in the woods in Vietnam, David. Uh, okay, my my larger point has nothing, no. It's finding the it's the finding cash the thing where you shit. You shit right, yeah. My point has nothing to do with the answering machine bit. It has everything to do with the line, "I want to be new to you." Because when he delivers that line, I don't know if Cameron Crowe directs this way, if he has his editors edit this way, but it feels like Cameron Crowe's like, this is the line that people will quote. And if if, if he were a 2021 filmmaker, he would be like, this is the line that is going to be everyone's Instagram caption. And yeah. he lingers on it because he's like, this is so important. He what puts I'm a doing line right or two now. like that in the major film. You complete me. We can almost go on and on. every yeah. line, and like is. I mean, he just. I just. I, I just I think understand. that he thinks what he's saying is so fucking important. But and, but I don't. <laughs> I, it's weird because you're reacting to the dialogue he's written as if it's so good that he shouldn't be somehow. Sp- I mean, like it stands out. It's so good. But then he's pompous for including it. Like, is it? No, no, the, no, your, no, no. Wait, your approach to screenwriting would be write great lines and then cross them out and replace them with something that won't be as memorable. No, I don't. I don't think. I don't think that it. it I'm not saying that that line shouldn't be in there. It is a fine line. Uh huh. And it does emit a certain emotion that I think everybody can, especially anybody that's ever been in a relationship that, like, they wished was going better. Right. It's like that's a feeling. I mean that I think not the fucking not that I 
am really that upset about the answering machine thing, but not that, but this is the thing like, this is a universal truth, you know? But it's the way that he presents it. It's like I don't the, under, but it's, it's the way that there's a little a pause before and after, and there's a way that it's lingered upon in the film that is kind of just like he, he's waiting for the audience to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. like it's, I follow your point, but it didn't bother me. It's like that, he's all it's, it's like he's like giving it. you a chance to react to it, even though it's not a live performance. Like it makes sense when oh, a comic tells a joke I, and they give the audience a moment to laugh. I guess if the line works for me, that that yeah. doesn't even register. I, I'll I guess you know maybe I'm just lulled into oh I needed that pause there for me to take that in. Did and you laugh at the, in. I don't remember the name of the basketball player, but did you Xavier laugh McDaniel, when they do X-Men. the mock he says, don't interview come with yet. him? He says, don't come yet. <laughs> no, I didn't. That, that wasn't oh, funny. Oh, man. Okay, that, that one was a good laugh. To me, there is comedy. To me, I enjoy the, just like you said, that you didn't see the comedy in it or it didn't register with you. I, I like how laugh. the rom, the rom of the rom-com is and I didn't do any research to see where this fell in the pantheon of rom-coms. My biggest problem with them these days is that they are very, very formulaic. And I believe that this either predates the formula or he purposefully ignored the formula to give you more like slice of life stories rather than, you know, the grand gesture at the end when the person makes the big speech and there's a slow clap and all of those things are missing and I appreciate this movie for that. And look, I, like, I don't have, like, I do, I also appreciate that aspect of it. Like, I I liked, you know, I didn't, I didn't hate this film. Mm -hmm. I hate Cameron Crowe as a director and I think in the hands of somebody else, second half is going to be great. And I think, I think in the hands of somebody else, this is a better film, but the, but you know, the film itself, Huh. Didn't hate it, hated aspects of it, liked uh, liked certain aspects of it. But one thing that I can't appreciate is, yes, like you're saying, it's not this formulaic thing. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, it is, it, you know, even though I wasn't necessarily like enjoying myself during it, I never reached a point where I was like, uh, there's can I be doing something else right now? Or like, you know, I, I didn't find myself like bored in the way that right. I would it be wasn't bored a long in a, 90 minutes. It was yeah. It didn't feel long, and I didn't, I didn't ever pick up my guitar and start strumming, or I didn't ever, I, you know, I wasn't really looking at my phone a lot just to take some notes, maybe. Yeah. But uh, and I took a lot less notes for this than I did in our second half of the movie, which I think says something about how much I or that I enjoyed it maybe a little bit more. Is but that what it means? I, we'll I yes. Spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> it's it's very hard for me to not because there yeah. are things about this movie that I want to compared to the next one. So I, and I'm really trying not to do that, but I, I just, my biggest issue overall, I think if I had any is at the bottom of the list, the soundtrack, I can get over it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I did get over it, even though I thought when Matt Dillon was showing the new stereo that he installed in her car, having Chris Cornell come out and do absolutely nothing, just standing next to him was kind of like, all right, fuck you. Like, bringing him out just to be like, hey, look, it's the guy from the band. But, which which is a minor gripe, and we don't need to get that into it. And I'll, so I'll I can, let it, I'll let so, it go. So, I'll let it go. So I'm can, like, to me, I... <laughs> I love a subtle cameo like that. Where I guess. To he's me, already on stage performing. Okay, it's here so nor there. if you're somebody who's aware of Soundgarden and cares, you get that little Easter sure. egg. If you're somebody who is kind of blind to Soundgarden and or you know or averse to it, then it probably just you know it just, just looks like there. some scumbag yeah, showed up there. in the sidewalk. Yeah. So that's at the bottom of my list. Number two in my things that 
didn't work for me that maybe I could have really loved this movie if it did was the jokes or the comedy aspect of it. Like there were some things that were kind of like, oh yeah, I see what you did there. Like the bike riding thing. I was like, oh, okay. That's, yeah, okay. You know, but I, but I didn't laugh at it or whatever. But number one is that I just like didn't care all that much about these characters for whatever reason. I don't know what it is. I mean... Yeah, they're I not just, like particularly. I mean, I just Cliff did. is certainly a jerk in the beginning. But but it's not that I didn't care about them because I thought they were bad people. Like it wasn't like a character assessment uh-huh. thing. It was it was just like whoever the guy Steve right? Yeah, what's the guy's name? Steve is the main like the guy promoting the train. He's idea just there. really boring. Like he's pretty milk toast. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to go to bat for him being like a vivacious character, but I think that's part of the strength of the film is that it doesn't have to lean too heavily. I think for me, I'm drawn in instantly by Linda. I do find the Linda character very compelling. I like Kira Sedgwick. I feel like I'm sad. Huh? Captain Wunsch? Captain Wunsch. From from Brooklyn Nine-Nine? You guys don't watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? No, I haven't seen, I haven't seen enough to know that she shows up on that as Captain Wunsch. She's like Series long villain. Oh, okay. Well, I, I got to watch that. It's a part good show. Of it. So I, I had that. I've ba- seen I had episodes. That baggage. I just haven't. I, I, had yeah, that baggage. I don't know Tom the names one. of the characters. Yeah. Well, so you know, but I think she's awesome. I, I love her, and I've and whenever I see her pop up and stuff, I like it. But this is one of the first films where she really stood out to me, mm-hmm. and I, I like her character. She's not perfect, but I think no. the flaws that she has are relatable flaws sure. and, and sort of understandable ones, and she's just as guilty of bad communication as any. But they set her up as sympathetic in the beginning because she gets fucked over in the most, like, obnoxious way yeah. Very one obnoxious. can be. Super which, I, I'm surprised you don't find at least a little dark humor there. That's a pretty fucking, like... Uh, yeah, she meets a foreign exchange student who's uh, leaving Quote, the unquote, next, yeah, foreign the next, exchange. We don't even know if this week, guy... Yeah. have an affair. He's concocted a scenario where he is... But He's on a, a limited artist. visa yeah. and he needs to leave just the, be, so he can have a casual relationship for a few days. And The payoff from that one yeah. just popped into the micro hard. <laughs> the payoff from that one at the end where they're they're at having the club, sex yeah. in the garage doors. Oh, oh my God. I hated that too. No, so, no, no, no. You're wrong, Carlos. And also whenever I mean, she yeah, comes back and she's I, like, I, I was like, nowhere near your neighborhood. Oh, I, I got to say, I mean, I hear you. I hear you. I, I and he feel, says, you complete me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she says, "Show me the money." I feel, yeah, and he and, and then she is like, "You had me at hello." Uh-huh. Yeah, you, he just reuses those lines every fucking movie. He, how did he fit him in? We need we own a zoo or we bought, we a, bought zoo? a zoo? Yeah. Did he direct that? Uh, he, he did. did. He, he did. did. That's a I, listen. Hey, I you know part of this was like I do I do have this love for a few of these Cameron Crowe films. I feel like I do. I do too. I feel like. But that love has not turned into me being able to... I've seen, like, Elizabeth Town was not a good film. No. I, I, I don't like that film. Jerry Maguire, I feel like, is probably too on the nose in the way that you're feeling like this at sometimes is too on the nose. Um, so more, I understand... Jerry Maguire way more so than this one. Let's yeah, be fair. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. because I feel that way about Jerry Maguire. No, I, I do know, not I feel that way about singles. Um, so, to, to me, this is kind of... I, I feel like so much of the baggage you're bringing with Cameron Crowe was there not letting you laugh at some of these things. Because I think from just a, I don't I was, know, I was, comedy I was, I was film standpoint. Yeah, but I feel like when you're trying and your mental block is there and you're like, I got to push past this mental block. Well, then it's going to be hard to find anything funny because you know you have a mental block and you're trying to push past it. Sure. But nothing's going to register unless it's like, it's like you know, it, Chris Farley happened to show up with his cock out. You're not going to like start <laughs> busting. I didn't expect that. I would have. I would have also <laughs> hated that, talk. and I can tell you that I would have hated that because he shows up in the film Dirty Work, which is a terrible film. R.I.P. Norm Macdonald. But I tried watching. Oh, I that can't 
can't film. believe you're trashing uh, on Dirty Work right now. I, I, Chris Whoa. Farley is especially heinous Rest in that in film. Rest in peace. Oh, uh, my gosh. Maybe I'll cut it out, but I've, I watched over the last couple of weeks, so many Norm MacDonald clips. And so I, I'd, I'd never seen that film. Okay. So I was like, I was like, Oh, I've never seen this. I have some friends that really like it. So I put it on and I was like, oh, this is the most offensive thing I've ever seen in my okay. life. Well, uh, so let's recap. Chris Carlos <laughs> hates Chris Farley, hates Cameron Crowe, hates grunge, hates the nineties, hates, hates Ari Oster. <laughs> I, I do genuinely not care for the nineties. <laughs> hates oh. the nineties. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and, well, and look, then and, again, then again, the the man I know who loves Space Jam the most. I and, love and Space Jam. To, to the extent where he can only take the 90s version. That's right. <laughs> look, look, I, okay, I should. And 90s basketball, I would imagine, James. is probably. I love 90s basketball. That's I love, a great I love 90s era. hip hop. Um, I love some 90s punk music. Yeah. But I don't like a lot of mainstream 90s things. And look, let's let's just be real about this. This movie came out when I was like six months old. So it's like an entire, so I get the historical, it's an entire, like it's a whole chunk of time yeah. that I was not a part of that. I'm very far removed yeah, from double indemnity, Chinatown, Godfather. I, these all I, came out prior to your life. I, I think, well, how, that, I, how about this? Let me put a little, cause I think, I think it's, you're so close to almost having experienced saying. it, this is and you experienced the reverberations of it yes, in you. ways that were mostly negative, at least in the things that you most associate with it. So it is, I mean, it's a fascinating study, I think, right now, thinking yes. about what leads Carlos to not find joy in this film, because I think, to me, watching it, it's such a natural joy that it's hard for me to imagine what blocks can people put up uh, to, to make it unhappy. But I get it. You know, I mean, you already come in with a chip on your shoulder about Cameron Crowe. You said it You much don't like grunge. You don't like... And and for various reasons that I think are probably justified. The Cameron Crowe films that have come out in the time that you've been a moviegoer have been largely bad. So why would you think that he's a good filmmaker? Yeah, I, think I get it. you see some real progression and evolution in his filmmaking here. I mean, Say Anything is directorial debut. We, we, we elected not to do that for this first Cameron Crowe, yeah. quote-unquote, episode. But this is second film. I think that the screenwriting I think it'll is sharper. Be last. I think I'm just. I mean, I. I I'm not. You don't think we'll do another Cameron Crowe? I mean, episode? unless Other we did say to, say anything with something else. Or I don't, something there's, new. When there's he has, no when he has a fourth Cameron Crowe film that I'm going to argue for us yeah. to do. Uh, Vanilla Sky. Aloha. Say anything. Oh, in Vanilla maybe. Sky. Okay, maybe. That's an episode I would. I would go okay, down. Okay, maybe. Go down. Okay, maybe. Okay, so although prediction, I have Tom Carlos hates Elysian beers. No, this is a fine IPA. I feel the exact same way. It is a fine IPA. Even a shelfie, if you wanted to have a six-pack of double IPA in your refrigerator and go to something that is going to be well-made, but not special. It's a it's a walk back in time, right? I mean, I think yeah. it is going back to the way that hefty, you know, this is, it's not calling itself a double IPA, but at 8%, it really probably should. Right. Like, it's, it's a bit maltier than you would think of a standard IPA. But other than that, it's got the hop character. It's got it's a little bitter. Got the bitterness on the back end mm-hmm. that you associate with kind of the older take on IPAs. I mean, a West Coast IPA. It yeah. is coming. I wouldn't to us turn down a second one if you offered it to me. No, I like it. It's it, to me. Um, it, it stands up. It's not a flavor profile that I'm always going for, but it's nice to know it's there. Agree. Yeah, it's um, exact. Just like David could describe why I feel the way I feel about singles better than I can. Uh, he described how I feel about this beer better than I can. Uh, yeah, not my, when I think, oh, what kind of beer do I want? I don't think this, but when someone hands me this, I'm like, this is very enjoyable actually. Um, yeah. 
for for what it is. Not going to kill a sixer of it by any stretch of the imagination, but I I'm I am not as disappointed with it as I was wow. with singles. Good. Uh, Seattle has delivered one of two. Where are Seattle's you going batting 50%. in the second half? Where are you? I going? don't think I don't think you're going to like it. I think <laughs> one of you might murder me at the end of this. I don't know. I I feel like you've you've done as deep a uh, kind of damage in the first half that you could do for me personally. Sure. You might be able to piss Joe off more in the second half. Also. I think I think we should talk about this on the after hours episode <laughs> of podcast. David, you know that I don't like crunch. We've talked about it I know, before. I know, but I'm still not willing to accept it. I, I <laughs> Okay. There's so much about you Carlos that he likes. This one is just well, a that's very it. bitter like, pill. It, it, it is. It's tough. It's like the people you know who are like capable of having the the right opinion. And then they just can't, they can't make it happen. It's it's a frustrating thing, and you don't want to give up. It's a it's like a lifelong project. When you David's to, ability to see like the good or the the good qualities of any film uh-huh. clearly have translated into our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> he allows me to still remain friends with him because he because he can sense there's something there. If you go to Hybrid to Record and buy those. Grunge, though, I, and, you're and blacklisted. Seriously, yeah, as, as, a, as, an, as an old exennial here, I. I <laughs> I have to have my my taste checked from time to time, and it's good to be reminded that grunge is not universally loved. So I am in the as vast much as minority, it hurt, though. as much as it hurt me, uh, it's probably a necessary evil. We will see. Uh, maybe another beer can mend this whole relationship. I hope, and so. maybe and maybe uh, our next film is a necessary <laughs> evil. <laughs> uh, we'll see when we return. going to attempt to repair my friendship with David Gurney as you transition into needing to repair hey I I just told you 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 did you did me a service so I mean as as much as uh, I was not happy with the take it was a good necessary intervention so I'm we've already I think (laughs) made amends here but whatever you're here is cherry on the top I think I I think I think this beer will appeal to you David and Oof. it is a slight kind of time. It's a musically two percent pilsner. You're gonna love it. <laughs> uh, it's actually a non-alcoholic beer. Uh, oh, a near beer. All right. Yeah, near beer. This is so the tie-in for this beer is that it's music-related. Almost beer. Um, it is a reference. Okay, so the film we're watching takes place in 1973, right? Um, yeah. Am I correct about that? I, yeah. Or 74. Uh, I think it's 73. And while 73, while the reference. Uh, this beer is making is one of the late 60s. It is of an artist that continued to produce uh, quality output through the 70s. Um, and it is a beer called Stout Mask Replica. Ooh, ooh. Where did you procure this? I'm so glad that you asked. This came by way of good friend of the show, Pete. Oh, uh, Pete! Thank you, my Pete friend. Came oh my gosh! With the Captain Beefheart beer, Stout Mask Replica. Captain Beefheart was often described as complex and eclectic, but always influential. In honor of the release of his legendary Trout Mask Replica album in the digital realm, we present to you this beer that we hope lives up to the polyrhythmic and polytonal complexity of that album. 
To attempt that level of complexity, we incorporated a variety of specialty malts, including roasted and caramelized varieties, which will please and challenge your palate at the same time. The oats help balance it all out and provide a soft, silky finish. It's tied up nicely with a hint of hot bitterness complementing its underlying malty sweetness. We are so proud to have collaborated with the Zappa Trust on this limited release. The family and crew has always been a blast to work with. Uh, it's an American stout at 6.5%. Oh, my gosh. What was the beer? That that- I just want to ma- make this point here. Joe, verify for our listeners, there is a tear streaming yeah. down my cheek <laughs> right yeah. now. Here, take my hand. I, I have not teared up at a beer before uh-huh. this one uh, i am well, absolutely go ahead and kiss and okay all right go, go ahead what Carl. was the beer that they were um gambling with uh heineken heineken yeah uh, that would have been a more uh that, this is better movie than the tie-in yeah, yeah this yeah, would right, have been right. better a more direct this is better than the heineken good job carlos oh yes carlos all right, so Thank we're you. talking almost famous. Thank uh, you, Pete. The next film after the uh, Crow's film after Singles was, of course, Jerry Maguire, which I think remains his largest uh, financial box office hit. And then in two thousand, what allowed him to be able to make this film? Yeah, I would yeah, say, yeah. you're right. Yeah, I think that the success of personal. Jerry Maguire gave a green light to pretty much anything Crow wanted to do. So he comes back with this semi autobiographical film, um, just like. Uh, Oh, why am I blanking on the lead character's name? Not Fugit. I know the actor. Uh, uh, Billy Crudup? No, no, no. The kid. The kid. What's his name oh, in the his movie? His character's name. Oh, his uh, William, William. Uh, yeah. Miller. Bill he- Miller Barbecue. <laughs> uh, William <laughs> is go. a uh, 15-year-old kid who deepens his voice while on a phone call to Rolling Stone magazine to trick them into giving him the ability to... Begin writing stories for Rolling Stone, and, and as I understand it, that's exactly what Cameron Crowe did, and was a young rock journalist for Rolling Stone magazine and other magazines, and then um, one of his big articles that he did, he went undercover while, after graduating from high school, go back into high school, which became the thesis and story for um, Fast, Times, um, Fast yeah. Times at Ridgemont High, and then there goes his career. Uh, but Almost Famous is a, a much-beloved film of uh, about this young journalist yeah. who on uh, Rolling Stone's dime starts tagging along with uh, an up and coming rock band Stillwater uh, played by Billy Crudup, Jason Lee and others and Mark Kozalek who, who who some people may know but before that he meets the editor and uh, you know big writer for Cream magazine played amazingly by Philip Seymour Hoffman who tells him don't fall in love with the band. Right. Write mercilessly. Write uh, honestly. Honestly. Uh, skewer them if needed. But he does the opposite and not only falls in love with the guys in the band, wants to be seen as a friend of these guys, but also with a team of groupies called Band Aids, played by a, uh, led by a star making turn by Kate Hudson mm-hmm. as Penny Lane. Penny. Um, and it's basically a, a weeks in the life of a kid with a band and an overbearing mother who doesn't want him to be doing any Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand. Yeah. Francis McDormand. Who is, again, Who incredible. is magical in anything she shows I'll up. I'll be quiet in. for a little while. This is that a top is ten movie in my life. Uh, the family whistle that Francis McDormand and uh, William have is my family whistle Aww. if I'm at Barnes & Noble and I can't locate one of my kids. Now, this is, I'm thinking back a little bit because my son just 
turn about to turn 21. So I think the Is family really? whistle would still work. When we're across the store yeah. from one another and I go, my daughter will look over to try to find me to this day. And that one time, Billy Crudup showed up, which was kind of nice, too. Uh, yeah. It, it was pretty cool. <laughs> Some people only dream of summoning Crudup so easily. Yeah, right? I mean, you get Crudup between your toes, and you're like, <laughs> fuck. But, but when it shows up kind of unexpected, it's nice. The, yeah, that's interesting, Joe. I did not realize how deeply I love the love movie. for this film ran. I love this movie, and I'm not going to switch it when y'all tell me that y'all like it, and then I can come back and hit you with... Uh... Because no matter what, that's what I heard in the first half. uh, Well, I I feel like I should let Carlos go because we probably know what I'm going to say anyway. But you like so you like it? Okay, you go first. I do. I do like this film. I I think extensive notes. He wants a very my love is not as deep as Joe's. It's it's not one of those films that I would put up there on any sort of top list uh, that I have right now of anything that I can think of. Um, But I find it enjoyable. I love some of the music that it it's capturing and, and using. I think I actually like some of the song selections a lot better than I like in singles even. Um, That's in interesting you say that. Specific songs that get used. Feel Flows in particular, I think, is one of my favorite Beach Boys songs, and it's one that's really, other than its use in this film, not really known by many people outside mm-hmm. of really obsessive Beach Boys fans, but the fact that this film used it, it kind of got a little lift. It's it, I, and, I love that. And you also are a huge Alvin and the Chipmunks fan. I have I have some love for Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah. <laughs> but they've got their exposure. I don't I don't agree. Yeah, you don't need to you don't need to put on for them. <laughs> but but anyhow, so so there's things I like about it. There's things that I'm not as comfortable with and I've probably gotten a little bit less comfortable with over like time. Like the rape scene maybe? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean that that's the Are you talking <laughs> yeah. about with the band-aids deflower Williams? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's weird because I yes I mean I think the sexual <laughs> how do I put it like the 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 sort of representation of sort of sexuality in the film and to some degree sort of gender politics the power of of various people in this film it does trouble me it it doesn't feel and it doesn't feel like it's ever something it's something that the film takes on Are and you say the to early 70s degrees? was a troublesome time and that these things should not be represented in film even no, if they no, kind no, of no 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 to an autobiographical no. degree happened no no okay. no that's not what i'm saying but thank you for asking so i could clarify uh-huh. no i am not saying that we should ignore the 1970s but i'm saying that if we're making a film about the 1970s from the 2000s or the late 90s, when I guess it was being conceived, that we should incorporate some of the sort of ethics and morality of what we have in that moment and and thinking about how we want to portray that. Now, I think that some of that comes in. I think that William is presented as a character that cares more about the people around him than some of the other people. You know what I mean? He is a better version of masculinity, I think, and he is our lead character and he's our most sympathetic character. So I think that that's right. But... I don't feel like the guys in the band and their behavior ever gets really dealt with in the way that it probably needs to. Um, I don't think that... They kind of win at the end. Yeah. I don't... Yeah. (laughs) And I don't think that... The the whole... And and this one is a stickier one that I don't... I'm just saying it it causes me some... it, It pulls me back from loving the film. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. But 
I don't feel like it fully works through the groupie thing in a way. Like, I think the groupie phenomenon is a very troubling phenomenon. It always has been. I, like, there was never a moment when I heard about groupies, when I learned about groupies, where I thought, like, fuck yeah, and I was cool. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> They're independent women. They can do whatever they want. Th- there's the part of me that wants to be like, well, if this is what a woman is choosing to do, she should absolutely be able to do it. Yeah. But then these women are teenagers who have been brought up in a certain society with a certain set of expectations where men are looked up to in a certain way and that it's hard for me to totally feel comfortable i'm not saying like i'm i don't feel like dynamic at play as well yeah Yeah. and i don't feel like the film was fully ready he was trying to give us a snapshot of this moment that he experienced which i get and and it was complicated and all that. But the problem is in depicting it. I think you're necessarily kind of giving like if you're going to be being romanticized. I think it's romanticized right. to an extent. Yeah. To your point of view, that makes it feel a little like I I do think there are things in there where he tried like again through the William character some of the things that get said the mother character too and some of the stuff that she brings in there that help to balance it. But I don't think it's a fully balanced thing that, that he achieves. I think it's still, because we end up with Stillwater as kind of the victorious, you know, band at the end who's got the Rolling Stone cover and is, you know, on their way to stardom, yeah, but that it feels a little, I don't know. Also, I mean, and this is a minor point, but I'm just curious how y'all felt about it. Doesn't it seem strange that Rolling Stone would be ready to publish an article that paints a band in a fairly negative light, but then when presenting them with the information in the article are just going to take their word for it that it's not true? Like, that part I found very odd. Oh, when they're fact-checking the fact checking, it's like It's like, oh, um, can I ask you a few questions? Are you a giant piece of shit? Oh, no? Really? Oh, you must be telling me the truth. It just seems so odd. I And... and, yeah, and, and, I, and that that has well, nothing to do I mean, with whether honestly, I did or did but, not like but the that's, film. That is how journalism works. I mean, when when you're including quotes and recounting experiences in an article, where you're doing the idea is now he was present of them saying it. in he has some tapes cases. Of yes, it. no, he should. You're, you're right. He had the tapes to back him up on some of the quotes. I don't understand why they didn't deal with that, but. There's some stuff where you could imagine them describing something that he wasn't taping. Sure, that they would just say, "No, that never happened." That like the whole they can't print thing. it then yeah. because they, you know, again, like they're looking Without at a lawsuit proof, at that point. It's sure. a he, he said, she said. It's, yeah, it's it's it's. So I, very, I understand the frustration. I think it gets condensed. I think it's collapsed in a way that, in reality, you're right. There would have been particular parts of the art. It wouldn't have been like the entire thing's a lie. Yeah, it would like, have been. William's you career, can't have this anecdote about blah 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 because the band says that that never happened or yeah. it's a different version and then it would have been well look we're gonna have to take so much out of this article it won't work they just collapse it and make it into your career is over nothing, kid yeah. they're saying nothing in this is true you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it was, it was uh, i, found I get I, I found I, that part odd yeah it, again it does not in any way color my Crow feelings about the film but a sentimentality in this film and and in singles, the rose scene at the at the grocery store that I talked about that works for me, um, and I could see why it might not work for everybody. The tiny dancer scene in, in Almost Famous is now almost can be lampooned. We've watched it so many times, but it, it works for me. Mm. Um, that was that was a scene I didn't find very believable. Yeah, the the healing power of music is the point he's trying to get across. And, but yeah, and that band that's kind of me. like a hard rock early seventies band. Loves but everyone Elton John. knew Elton John. No one was selling more albums, and everyone can sing. I don't know. I, I those Especially, I find that relatable because I remember like the anecdotes about you know punk bands on tour listening to ABBA and the, you know sure. like the, 
there is this, I think for musicians, you should appreciate this as, as much as anybody in this room. Like for musicians, like you can appreciate well-constructed pop songs mm-hmm. and earworms. Mm-hmm. And, and even if like you might despise how much they get played or, you know, like yeah. s- certain elements of the culture that it feeds into or something, you can on some level like just appreciate it as great songwriting. Well, I, you know, I, I, I do understand what you're saying, but just... The way that the band had been portrayed up until that moment as very like right. well, cutting think, edge, self important. But I, I, don't you think that's part of what he's trying? That's the I, a. I think it's an, probably closely modeled after an actual experience that he I'm had sure with some band on tour where yeah. it might not have even been Tiny Dancer, but maybe some pop song sure. comes on the radio yeah. and everybody starts singing along, and he's like, "What? These guys who are into like you know who are playing heavy rock at night are into this?" So I think that juxtaposition is probably born out of an actual experience that he's had and it's one that i understand and that i think a lot of people do so i don't know i I, I guess but i get it it's like kind of a once it's there and it's happening it's the, the the passing along of the albums from the older sister to the younger mm. brother and him discovering and the particular rock albums music that you know with pet sounds right at the front love yeah, seeing uh, that light a Good candle this will change your life all of that zoe deschanel rock stars have kidnapped my child all of it just scratches my itches oh I get, I joe there's movie, lots though. of this movie i love don't don't give me i mean there's lots that i loved and early on i didn't have the misgiving like when i saw this in 2000 when it came out i loved it i thought it was wonderful i was so happy with this film it's been in the times i've seen it since that i've had a little bit more pause about about some of the sexual politics of it and and where the film kind of lands and like you say that it is this story through rose tinted glasses for a reason but it kind of brings some other things along with it that i'm not as happy about rose tinting so i so you know i i do have that hang up but my gosh you're right i mean the whole beginning scenario with the sister and the mother and them uh, the squabbling going on and how an older sibling gets treated older sister especially versus the younger brother who then's kind of obviously given carte blanche and and has the most outrageous adventure that a you know high schooler has ever had in this film you know and then it's got a coming of age element to it is gonna mean that it has positive points that need to be chipped away at and it just nothing chips away at this every single time i watch it yeah uh my fiance was telling her what the two films were this week and she goes oh almost famous i'm down i'll watch almost famous anytime i mean we mm-hmm. share that in our home it's uh it's that's a great fantastic fantastic movie and just to your point and we can maybe move on i i think we're seeing a time that when we look back at it historically we we, we might be ashamed at the way that some of those sexual politics were accurately mm-hmm. maybe portrayed and going on yeah i mean there i mean there definitely is some level of accuracy groupies to existed it. no for sure and, yeah. and like what they did and there have been a great many attempts on the internet to cancel david bowie because yeah. he engaged in some of this groupie activity and uh you know every time it comes up i always think to myself i'm just like you know yes you're correct that this behavior is not acceptable uh, but you're also overlooking the point that Bowie is not the lone perpetrator of said thing, no. you know, and that like literally everybody was doing it at that time. That does not make it okay, but that does not make Bowie inherently evil for having done it. You know what I'm saying? And, and, right. and I think obviously now we look back at it with a very updated, more, uh, critical lens than which as we should, but I, I totally agree with what David's saying that if you're making this movie in 2000, the 
ideas of the day need to be ref- kind of reflected in how you present it. Not not necessarily in what you're presenting. I think it's okay to still have um, morally objectionable things in film. In fact, I encourage filmmakers to deal with morally objectionable topics. Mm-hmm. But the f- lens with which you view it through as a filmmaker and how you present it to your audience is your responsibility and it is going to inform us as an audience how to feel about you specifically as a filmmaker i think yeah um yeah not that i'm necessarily saying that the way cameron crowe presents that in these films makes me think he's some reprehensible human being because i don't i think he's a bad filmmaker but i don't think he's a bad person (laughs) you know um and and i i'm literally i like i i know that like there is some level of like comedy that comes to like me saying stuff like that because of like the kind of persona that I have on the show, but I'm really not saying it to get a rise out of people or to like ha- do some kind of bit or whatever. Yeah. Like I just, at the end of the day, we like what we like and we don't, like I just what don't, we don't like, like. Yeah, I just yeah. don't like him. Yeah. I don't think that the movies that he makes and are at the end of the day. Good. Sometimes we're wrong. I, sure. That is true. And <laughs> I hope someday maybe I realize I'm wrong about singles and I can enjoy that movie. Yeah. One thing I will say about singles is that I respect, the soundtrack so much more than I respect the soundtrack of this oh, movie. okay huh. because at least like in singles I can respect that you are dealing you are you are having this music that is of the moment like like you were saying singles was probably shot just before Nevermind hit or yeah at least right around the same time maybe it hadn't become the- it was definitely shot before Nevermind okay yeah. so it was shot before Nevermind so Cameron Crowe did not know at the time that the Seattle sound was going to become the most massive, right. absolutely Could not. gigantic no thing that was ever Even if going he thought it's going to start being heard more, there's no way he had any way to no think. No way. Nobody did. And so, I, did. and so I do hold some respect for him in that he was at least able to pick out in choosing the bands that he featured. Well, and you know, part was, of it was luck because he was with... Uh, um, which Wilson sister? The um, he's Nancy Wilson. Nancy. Nan- did the, he was. They're divorced. But right, yes, right. did the music for who Almost helped, Famous? I think yes. But she, and she's from Seattle. You know, Hearts from Seattle. So yeah. like he had this connection to Seattle, and she was actually active with some of those local music. Like she was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So the thing that I respected about singles is not his doing. Well, no, <laughs> I'm just else. I'm saying that it, there was a reason that he that that. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I don't think it takes it away <laughs> no, necessarily, but it was just, that's why he ended up in Seattle. You okay, know what I mean? Okay, like, yeah, of all, of all local scenes. It's like a greatest hits. Yeah, my yeah. my issue with the Almost Famous soundtrack is that it's so fucking easy to put together. Yeah. Like, any idiot could have compiled this soundtrack but just then, by looking no, at... No, who would have put Feel Flows on there? Who would have put Feel Flows? No, it's, it, no, but, it's not without it's, like, few shining moments, but for the most part, like, Tiny Dancer, like, I don't know, there's so many songs in this that it's just, like, so fucking obvious that if you were going to make a movie about this time period, you'd put these songs <laughs> in and just like, okay, come on. You know? Well, you've got to include Fever Dog. Fever Dog hey, has got to be... my back door. It's honestly there. not a bad song. No, it's not. Yeah, That's it's what I was saying. Like, the, the Stillwater songs are pretty good. They're not bad, yeah. Um, you know, three of them, I think, co-written they, by Cameron Crowe and, and Nancy Wilson, but then the... Uh, um, who, who else? Somebody else wrote a couple of them. They're a believable yeah. heavy rock or a hard rock band from right. that time. Um, there are definitely some positives in this movie. Like I like Francis McDormand is incredible in everything all the time. Even in a movie that I don't like necessarily, I can watch her performance and be like, fuck, you are so good. Yeah. How are you this good at acting? Did you see the trailer for the Denzel Washington and hers, uh, Othello? I have not. No, but I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of positive. Uh, you mean Macbeth, uh, Macbeth, Macbeth. tragedy of Macbeth. I realized it when I said it. Yeah. Uh, 
Joel. Is that his name? Joel? Joel Cohen. Joel yeah. Cohen? Yeah. Ethan and Joel. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not accustomed to saying their names separately. No, it's, it's strange. It'll be <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I, I thought Fran- Francis McDormand was fucking amazing in this movie. I also thought Jason Lee was very good in yeah. this movie. I, I <laughs> he mean, fits I, the character. He, he does. fits the character. He, it's, I mean, that, another thing I'll give Crow is... That he's, role he's is good perfectly cast. He's good at casting. He picks. I like, think Kate Hudson's the, a misstep. Well, and she wasn't the first choice either. But okay. but it, so that makes sense. Uh, the first choice was going to be uh, Sarah Polly. Okay. Who who I think would have been pretty great. And actually, Brad Pitt was supposed to be the Billy Crudup character. That, and, that and, and actually, too. and actually was doing like rehearsals and was preparing pre production stuff. But they decided. Club happened. No, they decided the character wasn't working with like something in the way it was working out. They, Interesting. Pitt didn't feel like it, the character fit him, and he yeah. Yeah. Crudup is like a generic enough face, and my like I don't like know him specifically from enough things to like. I, yeah. I, I, I think that maybe I can go with him better than I would be able to go with Pitt. So maybe that's that wasn't a bad move. Though it would, um, it would have made a lot more sense when they were like, but he's so pretty. You know what I mean? Yes, like, Billy Crudup's fine, but you could imagine with a Brad Pitt, yes. that line would have just, oh, yeah. For sure, yeah. for sure. Um, and I l- love Jay Baruchel showing up. Oh, I, yeah. just have, I just have such a <laughs> like fondness. Like a prepubescent Jay I know, Baruchel. Very, very, I, just, I have such a fondness for him as an actor. I think yeah. he's like pretty underrated and i just i don't know i like him and things um but again you know we already kind of talked about the like music is healing on the bus singing tiny dancer thing i did roll my eyes at that a little bit regardless of the choice of song and who the people singing it are but also to go back to the um telephone stall scene of singles Again, the way I don't know if it's his directing style or if it's the way that he edits, but the way he presents literally every line of dialogue that comes out of Penny Lane's mouth, it is as if the things that she says will change the very fabric of reality in the course of history. I mean, he plays her lines as being so fucking important in a way that I just find so eye roll worthy. And so just kind of like, come on, dude, like you're not making citizen Kane here, dude. It just seems like, I don't know. It just seems like he thinks the movies he makes are going to be hallmarks of American cinema and the dialogue he writes. And the thing that frustrates you the most is that they, <laughs> but the, the, I, in, I, in the zeitgeist, I hate when a good yeah, guy I mean, pulls that's it off. The, the frustrating thing, and I get it. I understand, like when something that you feel like should not resonate in the way it does is resonating that way, it becomes all the more infuriating when the person making it knows that it's going to resonate that sure. way. Where you're like, "Fuck you," and your fucking perfect dialogue that actually gets in people's not, heads but, and sticks there, and they quote it. No, but Carlos. I get that it doesn't land for you, but the fact that it does for the millions of people who does, that's the thing that really burns you up, isn't it? Sure, maybe. Yeah. And and look, I and I think I think the thing that really bothers me the most about the it filmmakers wrong and the entire American <laughs> public are wrong too. <laughs> I mean, yes, I do. I got a lot of problems with you people. This is a Festivus episode. (laughs) You're going to hear all. I do do have a lot of problems with you. I do somewhat feel that way. But look, my biggest complaint about it is, is, and 
I wrote this down and I was in a very like lucid state when I wrote this. I'm just going to read it <laughs> as I, I'm going to read it as I wrote it because it was how I felt. Okay. At the, it was towards the end of the film. Also, Philip Seymour Hoffman is very good in this, yeah. even though his character is a little corny. I he's good. He's good in everything all the time. Rest in peace, King. Like, and Lester Bangs. I mean, I think I think right there you see like two kings married in a moment where you know, and and it's it's obviously it's a distilled, amped up version of Lester Bangs. Sure. That, What's the that line? Has Jim Morrison. He's a buffoon. Is that what he says? He's a he's, buffoon. He's a drunken buffoon, yeah. uh, posing as a poet. Whereas I don't know if it was Lou Reed or who it was is a poet or is is a drunken buffoon and is genuinely a drunken buffoon that makes him poetic or something something like that. That was a, that was a very good line. I will agree with that, but which was probably just written down. Actual Lester bangs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and and look, this is how I feel about Cameron Crowe as a filmmaker in general. I think that the way that he writes and directs is it's sugar coated, just overly frosted, vapid nonsense. I don't think that there's any, even though I know that he like really did some of these things and he's drawing from real experiences. I'm not saying these things didn't happen to him, but I just think from like an emotional perspective, there's nothing like true or genuine or authentic or like tangible about Crow as a writer, especially in this film. It's like this idea. It, it the way that he treats this time period and like this thing is basically the way that America as a whole, especially like Reaganist America, looks back at the 1950s as this like a idyllic time as like the golden age of America, despite the fact that the majority of the population is overtly racist and there's all this fucking terrible shit that is going on. But it's like, no, we're not going to look at those things because this was the perfect time in American society. And for Cameron Crowe, this was the perfect time in like American music. And it's like every, it's, it's like every old dude who comes in the shop and is like, man, there hasn't been a good band since Led Zeppelin. (laughs) They don't do it like they did in the seventies anymore. Am I right, brother? And I'm just like, shut up, dude. You don't listen (laughs) to anything. Carlos, that the old guys come in and say that makes them, makes that opinion accurate. Because I said this earlier this week, completely irrelevant to this. Your high school music is your favorite. I I know that you two music (laughs) freaks don't share that opinion. But for most people, that is the formative time in your life. And that is the music that resonates the most forever. The Cure will always be the best rock band ever. But that's because I felt that in 1989. But in in this particular case, regardless of why, you might be right. Well, okay. (laughs) I am right. But the other thing, too, is like, but Joe would never say that the 80s was was the greatest time in the world ever. Exactly. I, I hear where you're coming from, Carlos, and I think that there is a, there on is a, record the Cure is fantastic. Yeah, sure, the <laughs> one of but the But on record, you would made. say that uh, Led Zeppelin has some merit. You're not saying that no, they're I to hate, be. I hate Led you hate Zeppelin. Oh, okay. God. Well, you li- okay. <laughs> well, then I, I don't. I don't you, like that. Band. You like the Stooges. I like the Stooges. You, you like the Sabbath. Beach Boys. Black Sabbath is the greatest band of all time. You like Black Sabbath. You like they don't show up though. The, uh, you, you like but Steely they're referenced in. You like MC5. I mean, there's lots of '70s music that you do love. I do, and that you know. So I don't like Steely Dan, but good music has been made oh, since then. Whew, you Joe, like you're you're starting. Hold on, let me get a beer. I'll, you're I'll make this right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you realize that you were a champion? <laughs> uh, I, I do not like Steely Dan. You were a champion. Cannot do it. 
But I think no, yes, I did. But what I, but what I wanted to say was I, I hear what you're saying, Carlos, and I do think that is the line that he's walking in this film that I feel like he does at times tip over where he's romanticizing it a bit too much. Uh, though I will not go with you all the way to say that he's not being critical. I do think there's plenty in this film that shows you the failings of the era. I mean, I don't think I think even though Stillwater comes out on top. It shows us what sort of jackasses and buffoons they are in, sure. in many ways. I think that the the you know some of the rock critic talk that goes on in it, not so much. Lester Bangs is mostly given sort of put on a pedestal, and I and I get that. Even though he is kind of a buffoon, he is, and that's what, I mean. If I have a criticism of the inclusion there, and it would he would have needed to have been a bigger part of the film to really make it work. Yeah. But they should have also revealed what an idiot he was at times, and how yeah. like. He was a slob and yeah, lived he his life. Have and much like time, he's so he's just the guy who drops these pearls of wisdom and then moves on sure. and then you, you know. So th- despite being a pretty flawed character, he's a very flawed person in real life. What he was used for in this film was as this sage voice of you know the music critic here. Yeah. So I I get that and, and and there's a problem there, but but I I do see that there's some things like again in the interactions that he has with the other Rolling Stone folks you know Ben Bong Torres and like yeah. I mean I also, think also Jimmy Fallon is proper crap in this film but he but this is one of the be. yes yeah. that's one of the few I even said that to Aaron I'm like I hate Jimmy Fallon so much but it works in this film in its my, fa- in his favor because my I should him, hate that character yeah. and I do it, I, it it makes it so that Cameron Crowe has to do little to nothing yes. for me to feel the way about there that character go. that so I need he's to he's good casting but that's an accident <laughs> that's an accident though because no. Jimmy Fallon wasn't big enough at that point no. for anyone to feel anything about well, him well no he had he had made it clear on Saturday Night Live that he was a shit comedian <laughs> so I mean, barely though barely this is but enough that Crowe could say okay yeah I could have this shitty hack comedian who can't even keep a straight face through a fucking scene be this character and everybody which, will hate which him. doesn't it make you so mad that that's what people love about him is that he's he that he that is that he breaks that's why people like if him. people love that about him i've been able to like they do forcibly ignore they, that because they i talk think about that's it on the his worst. show all the time oh i don't watch the show so they're like, I mean, they're like oh is it oh wasn't it so like funny when you were all just like breaking on a live broadcast oh yeah. you mean he was breaking and everybody else was no, him and horatio sands like got more famous because they were the break guys yeah. on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. I, li- I like Horatio Sands, strangely. I but the, 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 Okay, the, the, now we're getting down a rabbit, but yep, yes, I think it works well. The, so I hear where you're coming from. I think it does do a little bit of the critiquing of the... I don't, I don't get the feeling like he's trying to put this moment on a pedestal, other than the fact that he was... It was a pivotal moment in time for him, and thus having this kind of surrogate character and all that. It's hard to disentangle from it and I think it does make him tip over into being a little bit more on the romantic end Rosie I, yeah I, I get yeah. I get where you're coming from I do and I do think it it's ultimately what undid Cameron Crowe as a filmmaker the stuff that you're and it makes perfect sense that you were sort of became aware of him as a filmmaker who was always already bringing that stuff into these worst projects that didn't deserve the thing but I mean I think you look at those, I guess, the first five films, if we include Fast Times, mm-hmm. Fast Times, Say Anything, Singles, Jerry Maguire, and almost, and almost Famous. Now, Vanilla Sky, we might even include in there, and we've talked about that, but that was an adaptation of somebody else's script, and yeah. I think it yeah. took him in a direction where it got... Uh, the, the story's a lot more complex. It doesn't yeah. rely as heavily on lines of dialogue that right. resonate or whatever. But those first five films where he was like really writing and then a, and then writing and directing them 
I think they're remembered fondly by those of us who saw them in the time because they were kind of these crystallizations of certain kinds of things that were going on already in romantic comedies. But like Joe said, like subverting them in certain quirky ways, bringing in elements that hadn't been there before, this reverence for music that I think a lot of us appreciated and what he did, which can land differently. Like you say, if he's reverent about something that you think is total shit, then that's probably going to be not a I, big attracting factor. And I don't think the music that it is shit. I think no, it's I like mean a more fine, in singles, but yeah, in singles. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a fine compilation album. This almost is. And uh, I think I think the last thing I'll say about it is just like I said in singles that it, you know uh, the way it was written and the story structure and the weaving of all these different lives together I did find somewhat interesting and it kept me engaged in this mm-hmm. I did pick up my guitar and start strumming and fucking during around during famous, this film because yeah. I just got fucking bored I got more huh. bored with this than I did it had been a long time since singles. I had seen this I had not rewatched it in the last decade probably wow yeah and so going back to it, I found it very easy to stay focused. Just, But I, you know, I already had some fond memories of the film. And it really does, like, there's some, I mean, just certain, there's a lot of the scenes are just really greatly, beautifully constructed scenes yeah. that just kind of play out the way they should. And I, and I get it. Sometimes it almost feels too perfect. Almost perfect, right? But, <laughs> um and that can be frustrating in its own way, especially if it's not landing with you personally. Like a lot of this stuff does land enough with me that it yeah, works, but I could be. find it really cloying and shitty if it yeah. felt like, oh. And and there are plenty of films that we've talked about that kind of do these same things where it's like a kind of typical screenwriting move that to me just plays well, you know, like. Mm-hmm. And I understand that I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth when I talk about this film because sometimes, because you're right, sometimes that does work for me, but with him, for whatever reason, it doesn't. And I mean, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) It, It also bums me out. And it's gonna, and it's gonna, well, that's interesting. I, I, well, actually, I did. I wasn't saying that the film bums me out. I was going to, that was part one of a sentence that I was constructing. No, I thought you were saying that it bums you out that you don't appreciate it uh, on some it does, level. Oh, that, that also does kind of bum me out because so many people love it. And like people come in, you know, I, I, I did stock a bunch of copies of this soundtrack in the shop and yeah. we sold them quickly. Yeah. yeah. And some people have come looking for this? it since then. And oh, oh, go ahead. Finish, I, I did feel a sense of sadness that I couldn't quite put my finger on after I finished this movie. Like I was in a bad mood afterwards and I don't, and it wasn't like a, Oh, I'm so mad. They made me watch this film. Now I'm in a bad mood. It wasn't that it was like an intangible kind of thing that I couldn't quite pinpoint. But what I was really starting this all to say is that every fucking time that I listen to WTF now, I'm going to realize that lock the gates is a fucking reference to this film. Oh, Ah, I hate that. Oh. The Days and Confused soundtrack, the Forrest Gump soundtrack, and this soundtrack are kind of like primers for the mainstream. This soundtrack has three. I, I wish from- you hadn't included Forrest Gump in that, but I mean, you had to, so I yeah. guess. Okay, so you don't like Forrest Gump, right? Shitty movie? Yeah. Okay, so the way you feel about Forrest Gump, the way I feel about this movie. No, I, Good I, analogs. I, I get that. I, I mean, I... I it, but it would be interesting. I don't think I don't know if I dare to do it honestly to do Force Gump on this show. But <laughs> because I have complicated feelings about that film, and I don't ultimately like it. I don't ultimately think it's a good film. But 
true to Dave Gurney, you know, saying I can see what it is that other people see in it that really love it, and I and I cannot deny it as the cultural phenomenon that it is, and that extended that- right out to its soundtrack in the way that Joe just did. That frustrates me personally, but then I have to say. Yeah, but it deserves its place. It's like, a I'm not going to tell you you have to take it out of those three. I just wish you hadn't included it to begin and, with. And, and, and I, all three of those are primers for the music of the day. Sure. It's the greatest hit 60, soundtrack 70s and 80s, of, yeah. of, of those days. Yeah. And, you know, Tiny Dancer's a banger. And, and honestly, I'm glad that it's in the movie. Tiny Dancer's a great song. And also, singles. And is, a lot of people have. Include singles in that because 60s, 70s, 80s, singles is the 90s. Sure. It's a sure. And I'll, I'll, it's I mean, a, I'll give it credit where credit well, is due. I it's, mean, it's. Uh, that, that and like Belly. Or something like that. Yeah, it's I was. Like, gonna, I was gonna say. I feel like. I feel like for it to be a real '90s primer in the way that these other soundtracks were for those decades. You have to look back at the '90s. It, it would need to soundtrack. have occurred. Yeah, I would need to have more yeah. in it. But I hear what you're saying. Right. I mean, it's a snapshot. It's a snapshot. Yeah. Well, I mean, by the time you get to like '98, '99, you're basically in the 2000s already. I mean, yeah. We have never, sure. We've never had a beer on the show that made one of us cry. So I'm really <laughs> interested. The can alone. And, the can alone. Uh, this is just. I, I this mean, this is very good. It's a great, it's a great stout um, that yeah, yeah, I don't think in any way actually comes close to uh, <laughs> emulating the polytonal complexity of the of what the album. Could, though? But no, but nothing could. There's no way. Like, and actually, I probably wouldn't want to drink that beer. I, I mean, as much as I'll listen to Trout Mask Replica, I'm not going to drink the beer version of Trout Mask Replica. Most but, people don't want to listen to Trout Mask Replica. No, most people don't, but I will. All, I, I regularly at least a couple times a year so the, the, this but the fact that they're paying homage the can art w- with the picture of the captain uh, w- with the trout mask yeah. <laughs> iconic image that even if you don't know this album you'll see this cover you'll see this can and you'll be like oh it's that weird album I've seen that before on the wall at some record store and you know this can of beer is going in my record store oh I hope so this is yeah but but as a stout it's just a really solid yeah American stout I mean what is it six and a half yeah I mean yeah. it doesn't it's not boozy it's it's very easy drinking um, a little more bitter than I would say a True. typical stout which but it says on the can very blatantly br- does bring a little complexity yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't like, bother me come on I, no I like not it, at all actually. actually I kind of like it it doesn't come off as sweet mm-hmm. and, and over clo- I'm, I'm loving this beer and so this is our first beer from Duckfoot Duckfoot beer. where are they out of San Diego they're out of San Diego They've made a great impression on me. I cannot wait to drink some more Duckfoot. Any brewery that is putting this on their cans and making beer this good to put in the cans. There's some good minds behind that. Absolutely, I, I like the, I like the vibes they're putting out. It's got a nice aftertaste, and sometimes you can breathe in and out of your nose after you drink a real complex stout or porter. Mm-hmm. And this is mm-hmm. kind of staying with me. Yeah, it's a good amount more. Oh, I'll take a beautiful. Sip, wow, a good amount more. Well, you know th- this. This episode has been an interesting one. I, I you know, I, kinda, I didn't mean it as the personal no, affront, the, uh, and I that, didn't, and I didn't mean to. I, I, I think we talked it out. I'm uh, glad I was here to keep you guys separated. I would have <laughs> stepped. Yeah, now we're talking about the '90s. Got to keep them separated. separated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you think in after hours we'll talk about, uh, without, with the exception maybe of the the. the episode that's still up for vote at our patreon site that we can maybe kind of lock in some stuff i think it's yeah and, and and i and i i i think in a in a moment we will tell what the first Ooh. halloween episode will be the real. Uh, october. Yeah. yeah the yeah. first october episode will be now it's a fun episode y'all 
<laughs> who who would have thought that a Cameron Crow episode is probably our longest yet outside of like a Harold bringing a bunch of beer episode. Um, <laughs> Which I think we cried over a beer that day too. That might have been. Actually, I just don't remember it. <laughs> well, you do remember the, the the one that was jalapeno one. The yeah, those the, yeah, those were the like Broncos. tears of nausea. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I cried tear. tears of joy over the microphone stout. That oh, we did. that was good. Press yeah. play. That was yeah. really good. Um, one of the best things about this podcast is that the conversation does not end when the episode is over. And I can say that definitively because I did talk to somebody about how great True Stories is just a few nights ago oh, after they had listened to the show. Uh, we talked it out IRL, but. We can also talk it out virtually. You can join in on the conversation on all of your favorite social media channels. You can find us on Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and a Movie TX, Beer and a Movie Podcast.com, of course, has a link to listen to all of our episodes absolutely for free, but it also does have this incredible beer map. Yeah. It's a Google map that has little pins on every city, state, country, brewery that we have visited. And you can see all of that information there to follow along with our beer journey, which I think is very uh, a very fun and exciting thing to do. And of course, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash beer movie podcast. $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every single week. And every now and then you get to do fun things like program an episode for us, which is currently happening for our All Horror October if you sign up when this episode comes out, you still have time to vote on uh, which episode we are going to do. There are two different options right now that were pulled from several suggestions that were left in comments on the Patreon episodes. We narrowed it down. We have two episodes that feature two films each, and they are currently being voted on. So that is just some of the stuff that happens over there. It's a great time. We Lots talk about all sorts of stuff. We do talk about beer. We do talk about movies. We talk about a great many other things as well. TV, uh, life, mu- personal music, life, music, yeah. our personal lives, all of that kind of stuff. It is a fantastic time. And for the big reveal, our first episode of all of our all horror October second spectacular annual. second year second annual all horror October is going to be Nosferatu and Nosferatu. Bang, bang. Let me explain. Original Nosferatu. (laughs) 1922. Silent. Silent film. Although I'll be seeing it with an organ score later this week. You will. I unfortunately will not be there for that. I'm going to cry my entire drive up to San Antonio on Friday evening because I will not be there. Uh, But then we are looking at 1976, I believe. Werner Herzog's. Nosferatu colon the vampire or comma the vampire. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is Werner Herzog's adaptation of the Nosferatu lore starring Klaus Kinski, music by Popol Vuh. So films over 50 years apart of one another, basically tackling the same subject matter. In the same country. In the same country as well. Yeah, both German films. Um, So that is going to be our first episode. Ooh, can't wait. Can't wait. And then uh, there are three more after that, so you'll have to hold on tight and see what they're going to be. We are holding on tight to see what the results of the poll on the Patreon are going to be. That's right. We'll know soon. And we will. Um, And that wraps up another fantastic episode of Beer and a Movie, another polyrhythmic, polytonal, and very complex (laughs) episode of Beer and a Movie. Until next time. A compliment for us is a compliment for you.